Greetings, friends. I'm Will Nicholas, your timekeeper. And I'm Hunter Michelle Kaufman. And I'm variant Darren Wright. And this is Loki, the Sacred Timeline. Sorry, on a tangent. The TVA got him. Oh, no. You have to do that again. I insist. You must. Free will. Free will. No, no. Um. Anywho. Loki. Sacred Timeline. Never odd or even. Greetings, friends, and welcome to the Loki, the Sacred Timeline podcast for the third episode, which is called Lamentus. Unfortunately, at our first attempt to make this happen, we had some issues and we had to prune a variant Michelle Kaufman from the time, the Sacred Timeline. But we managed to resolve those issues and uh, there will be a bit of a, a blooper for Patreons only. Uh, that will uh, be released um, when I get around to editing it. Uh, I'm Will Nicholas, and Darren's going to bring us a synopsis. So moving on from last week's bridging episode, Loki has followed the variant back into the TVA, and the variant goes off uh, on her devious plan until it is foiled. They manage to escape to Lamentus 1 at time of an apocalypse and find themselves stranded with no way off the planet. And the entire episode is entirely focused on the two characters trying to find a way home or back to the TVA. Yeah, I think this episode is a lot about discovery. We discover a lot more about both characters as well as how they interact with each other and goals that both of them have along the way. Loki seems to be very... Uh, malleable with his um, with his goals, he seems to be able to uh, when uh, process new information and therefore change his goals to uh, suit. Whereas Sylvie seems to be very single minded and focused on one goal, and whatever happens if it's not to further that goal, then it's unimportant. It's interesting, yep. isn't it? Because Loki does not seem focused at all. Not even phase that he can't get off the off off the planet yet. Certainly, we are seeing in this episode uh, Loki looking confused, or at least confusing uh, us as the as the watchers. Um, I shouldn't use that word, should I? That's loaded in Marvel sense. But but as those beyond the fourth wall as to what his agenda is or whose agenda he's following. I wasn't sure whether he's just making mischief whether or not he's seeking his own ends or whether or not he's still an agent of the TVA and and uh, I, I'm not sure if he knows during this episode you're right because half the time we we aren't ever really understanding of what Loki's real motives are and at a point of times when we think that we do suddenly we're shown that actually in some cases he wasn't following his own motives he was following orders so we ended last episode with Loki going through the portal to follow our variant, and uh, we can now refer to her Sylvie because it's in this episode. It's no longer a spoiler. Um, and they fight. Uh, Loki seems to both be fi- uh, not necessarily fighting for the TVA, but he definitely stops Sylvie from her destination but then tries to recruit her as well in his kind of plan, if you can call uh, call that a plan. So then we um, we get that fight, and we you know show that Renslayer just absolutely does not care about uh, anyone except getting her goal as well. She's a very interesting character in this um, in this show. And then they fall uh, to escape from being pruned, and that's where we end up with them on this apocalyptic planet. So I actually find, found it interesting that they landed in an apocalypse, so that must I- indicate that Sylvie has the time pad programmed to immediately find apocalypse. So, like, why? I got the impression that she had a whole bunch of presets because at one stage she says to Loki, of all of the different apocalypses that you could have sent us to, this is the worst. So I, I get the feeling that she has apocalypses on speed dial, dial on the temp pad. That's what they call it, isn't it? Temp, temp pad? 
Yeah. So, uh, it, yeah, it seems that, um, um, you know, uh, they've been struck by lightning and um, um, the dock's been sent back in time to 1855 uh, because of a preset in the flux capacitor. Is that right? Or am I in the wrong movie here? We've gone into You're in the, the wrong the movie. Yeah. But that's interesting because that means uh, Sylvie can also um, get in and out of situations, which we saw them um, saw them investigate in episode two. Yep. So moving on to episode three, we now have two variants <laughs> uh, coming face to face. And I wondered, like, if you were going to choose an apocalypse, what one would you choose? And how would yeah. you choose? Isn't apocalypse by very definition a bad thing to be in? Um, and... The, the premise of Loki is that no one survives, therefore nothing you do can um, can make any any change in the timeline. No one will find you. And so isn't every apocalypse a bad one? So this word apocalypse that we're using here, um, it's, it's not the end of the world. Um, we, we think it is, but um, it's actually the Greek word, which actually means revelation, which is fast, fascinating. And that last book of the Bible um, in in its Greek form is actually known as apocalypse. Um, so yeah, look, apocalypse isn't the end of the world. And a lot of the um, the apocalypses they're talking about are very localized. The one they end up going to is in Alabama and seems to only affect that city. But the reason it's an apocalypse is because um, that city doesn't survive. And so when we're talking about apocalypse is the tsunami that Indonesia had all those years ago an apocalypse because yeah. no one died or uh, does it count because we've got, you know, evidence that it's it's it was there in terms of video footage or we can right. see things happening. Or are we in an apocalypse right now? Is this the COVID-19 apocalypse that we are living through at this very time? Could security cameras have picked Sylvie up every time she came along? Now, I do like Sylvie's plan of um, being a, being in a warehouse of uh, food and supplies because, as they suggest, that she keeps coming back to the warehouse. So that seems to be her plan to get food. So in Apocalypse, is, even though she can go to any Apocalypse and take anything she wants, she keeps coming back to this one. Although they don't use security footage or, or, or technology to detect apocalypses, they they use sudden shifts or peaks in the sacred timeline, don't they? I mean, that, that's so. So the way they detect a variant is that there's a sudden spike heading off in one direction, and so what we're hearing is that in an apocalypse, um, nothing that we do matters, um, and and so that's why it's hard to detect a variant in an apocalypse. Um, uh, yeah, if they had have got onto the ark, they would have created a spike in the sacred timeline because they would have saved thousands of people if they could have got them all off the, and that would have made a huge mess of the timeline if the ark was supposed to be destroyed. Jumping to the end, because I, I, um, there was actually the, out of the six endings of this show, um, it was actually the end that really got me the most because it was really just this, what now with the other episode well, the other the other um the other endings you could kind of say oh he went through the portal therefore the portal leads to another apocalypse to the TVA to Asgard and you can kind of go okay well they're going to do something there but with this one they just arc is gone and they're just two defeated lokis <laughs> Uh, well, a Loki and a Sylvie because she doesn't want to be associated with Loki, but it just felt really, yeah, like an apocalypse. Now what? <laughs> so. Totally unresolved. I wonder if you've ever felt that nothing you do would make a difference. I have felt that. <laughs> I'm feeling it now. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I, I think that a lot of people probably feel that right now and there's this feeling that maybe the only time that anything you do that doesn't make a difference is in an apocalypse when everyone dies but even then like I, I, I wonder even even in the space of that episode if they could have done anything that mattered 
to the people that were there. I'm sure everyone dies, but still, still what they do matters. Well, they talk to the, the example in the show is that they talk to the lady who's defending her, um, defending her property. And as they walk away without her, they have that conversation of, well, she, isn't she just going to die? It's like, well, why not die on your own terms? If that. Um, then we also see um, in on the train station only certain people are allowed on the train towards the arc, and it seems that they've got a socioeconomic uh, situation going on where only rich people, only those who have enough money to afford, uh, are they the best people to be on the arc? That's another question that we have to think of ourselves. It, just because you have money, um, you were able to get money, is that the best person to put on the arc? I really found that really highlighted for me um, the role of privilege in an apocalypse. That that um, when you're a person with with money or power or position or or political clout, that you actually have a greater capacity to navigate um, a crisis event or an apocalypse. Um, so it really highlights that. But as they got closer to the end, it didn't matter what money people had. It didn't matter like so. All of the people who were on the train um, didn't get there fast enough to get onto the Ark. The Ark didn't get off the planet anyway. And so in the end, it didn't matter how powerful any of the people thought they were or whether or not they actually tried to win the day with brute force or uh, guile and diplomacy. Um, in the end, uh, nothing worked. Nothing worked. I I always found it interesting that um, with that train station, the guards were only letting so many people on or only letting the people with the tickets on. Those guards had to know that they would not survive. So at what part in the apocalypse did they then go, maybe we should have gotten on the train, we should have used our uh, superior or our guard position to escape the apocalypse ourselves. I was really I was really like, okay, you must be dedicated and know that you're going not going to survive to still be um, not letting people on. Darren. Yeah, well, there's a point of following orders and it's not just you got to remember, it's not just the rich people who are getting um, getting on that on that arc. It's also the people that are going to serve those rich people. Um, and you might find that the essential workers are actually the people that are going to staff the bars and clean the beds and do everything else that, that rich people need that can um, continue to operate that arc. The, the actual train scene had me had me thinking. Um, we've just done a, a study on the on the Book of Romans with um, a book by a woman named uh, Beverly Roberts Gaventa. And in it she she reflects that there's this there's this old gospel tune uh, uh, about called this train and it's about all the people that aren't going to get on the train. Um, all the people that don't deserve a seat on the train. Um, and what she does is she reflects on that tune and then goes ahead of a number of years to Bruce Springsteen's song, um, uh, Land of Hope and Dreams, in which case Springsteen imagines the same train but allowing all the vagrants on, allowing all the people that weren't allowed on the previous train to finally find a space because all are welcome on this train. And I wonder what you need to do in order to move from a position where power and privilege um, are the things that we hold dear and get you on the arc um, versus the point of actually making sure that even like even the people you think who are never going to be saved or shouldn't be saved find themselves welcome on the arc. But it, as you said, well, it doesn't matter in the end, does it? Because no one gets off. It's just sort of a process that's designed to try and keep as much peace as they possibly can until the world obliterates but itself. But I suppose we know that. We know that at the beginning because that's what Sylvie says, that the Ark doesn't go, but they don't know that. They, this is them living it for the first time. Um, and when you said about essential workers, it reminded me of uh, Douglas Adam in Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy universe where um, this planet was being destroyed, so they sent off three ships. And the first one was all of the smart people, the scientists, and the second one was um, the working class, and then the third one was all these non-essential people who cleaned the telephones or picked up the garbage and 
that ship was actually the one to survive, whereas the rest of them perished because they didn't have those people. So how can you say that um, to not let someone on the train that they wouldn't then be essential? Actually, it's worse than that, Michelle, um, because they they set up the B-Arc, which was the all of the telephone sanitizers and cleaners, and they said they're going to send the B-Arc first in order to deal with the overpopulation of the planet. And then once the B-Arc left, the other two ships decided they didn't need to leave anymore. And so they just sent all these people out to go nowhere. And they're the people who established our Earth. So they're our descendants, uh, ancestors. They're our ancestors um, on, who, who lived on the great computer. And you, you live in that now. We're living that where all these essential workers who still get to go to work during the um, apocalypse that is COVID-19 are takeaway servers, are um, shopping, um, I've lost the word. Retailers. Uh, retailers, um, supermarket employers, sorry, that's the word I was looking for. Um you know, all these people who have menial jobs that we once or people once looked d- down upon are now essential, first in line for the vaccine, uh, still able to go to work um, without being um, fined or anything like that. So the train situation and that, then therefore the ARC situation is very um, eth- ethically debated now. <laughs> I remind of the clerks scene um, in the movie where um, where they argue the the deaths of Death Star One to Death Star Two because Death Star One was fully operational. Of course, it was full of of army people, of stormtroopers, and Empire, um, and so no one really grieves the loss of all of those lives um, because there were people who had signed on for um, for the war. However. Death Star Two and Return of the Jedi that would have had that was still under construction. So it had all these construction workers, it had all the plumbers, it had all the carpenters, it had all the steel workers, it had everyone who was in, on there who were just people trying to get by. Um, right at the end of this movie, they're all killed. Just people who were trying to do their jobs and get by. And if they um, had have listened to Admiral Akbar when he said "It's a trap," they'd have got off. Um, so. I want to circle back, though, um, to a point that Darren just made. I, I think we, we kind of skimmed past it too quickly. When the apocalypse is actually about who gets saved and there's limited resources, then we can become quite judgmental. We, we, we have to become quite discerning about who we save and who we don't save. But if we think about eternal salvation, for example, and we think about it as as infinitely eternal, then either everyone gets saved or no one gets saved. Um, or, or in our case, in terms of Christianity, everyone doesn't get saved and Jesus takes the wheel and saves everyone. Um, and, and so to me, I found myself swaying backwards and forwards between this parable of the great banquet where people were invited and they said no. And so all of the vagabonds get to go, like in the Springsteen um, song. Um, and, and, and this idea to say, well, actually, is it meaningful to have salvation if everyone gets it? Um, does the value of a commodity increase if it's limited in supply um, when it comes to eternal salvation? But does that mean the fact that you're asking that question that you think that someone shouldn't be saved? By asking that question, it feels like you do have, um, and no judgment, but even by asking the question in my mind, you've you've got a standard. You're um, you're already going, okay, well, if everyone gets one, what's the point? Do I want uh, serial killers and conductors of mass genocide living in the same eternal heaven that I'm living in? Yeah, I said serial killers today, um, so we'll we keep that one in. Damn it. <laughs> I'll, I'll get one on one day. <laughs> but it's a good question. I mean, who, who do you want living? Who do you want to be living next door to you? Do you want Alice? Who is Alice? Will, but does that mean, yeah, living next door? Do I get to choose that? 
and by having that choice, does that mean I also still have the ability I, I to think, judge and negatively? <laughs> I, I think this whole concept of salvation for me, though, is is all about where is my line? Um, because I think this design of, of, of that we, well, this idea that we have that there are some people that are in and some people are out, it's, it's all about who do I think should be out? Who do I want to be a part of a relationship with? Um, and it, it shows me that my concept of love or my concept of God is limited because I can't find a way of including everyone. And any time we get in a conversation about um, salvation or, um, or or inclusion in God's final plan, end plan, um, it comes down to a question of who do I think shouldn't be in? And so it's all about my line. It's never about God's. Um, it's never about this uh, understanding of what, what love could potentially be. And in any conversation I have about salvation and and Anytime I'm 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 accused of being a universalist, which I would say I am, um, it comes down to a question of: Do you think Hitler should be in in heaven? And again, like I think, what happens when that person comes face to face with everything that is love? Does that melt into nothingness? Does that become like what that level of hate comes into the level of love that is my image of God? What so, Darren, ends up Michelle, I want to know what love is. Um, love is a dagger. Love is a dagger. <laughs> <laughs> love is a dagger. Tell us, tell us a bit more about the dagger. That, that's great. I, I, that's a fantastic little scene there. Love is a well, dagger. While Darren looks that up, I actually wanted to say um, the only way I get my mind around. Uh, the question of who is self, um, who is salvation or who is um, for salvation. The only thing that I look is salvation is not for me to give, it's for God to give. But also it's about my favourite word, which is consequences. Mm-hmm. So they anyone can have salvation. The serial killers in jail can be, have salvation. But it's about the consequences. The Lord says everyone is welcome, but that doesn't save you from consequences. Mm. Just because you went out and murdered a bunch of people <laughs> doesn't mean, and then you found God, doesn't mean you are um, free from having to go to jail <laughs> for those. You still have to live out the consequences of breaking the law if we want to use that con- uh, con. And it's actually fascinating because this week, and I'm looking forward to this conversation in the next episode of um, Voyager, we'll be covering the character of Lon Suter, who is the serial killer Betazoid, who commits murder on Voyager and and potentially is going to spend the rest of the 75-year journey home sitting in his quarters. The debate, because they won't enact capital punishment, was do we keep him in comfort or put him in an uncomfortable place. Um, so we can argue about consequences, but but the reality is by any legal standard, by human means, any moral human code, um, Loki's not someone we would say gets to be saved. Wouldn't you agree? Well, not by the end of this episode. By this is, <laughs> end, end of this episode, you see um, Loki and Sylvie resigned to the possibility that they might end up dead on this planet but i'm talking cosmically does 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 god let loki into heaven which loki our loki our, our hiddleston loki well we have two of them now um or one sylvie um i, yep. I think in the end like it's a big question of do gods have gods get into god's heaven right well there's only one god and he doesn't dress like that. That's what um, Captain America and, says. And I guess it depends on uh, the process of salvation. Did Loki follow the the code uh, and the processes to get salvation? But if it's a matter of God saying everyone's everyone can get in, then everyone gets in. It's not not for me to say because I'm limited by my. Uh, 
earthly human judgments. Like, I hate tomatoes. Uh, that doesn't mean that other people can't. No, no tomatoes in heaven. <laughs> tomatoes are out. No tomatoes are in heaven. So Maybe. if that was up to me, there would be no tomatoes because they are a nightshade. They are the worst of the worst. But I already but know I'm this. Sure... I already know there's going to be at least one tomato in heaven, and that's Bob the tomato from VeggieTales. I was going to oh, say, yeah. don't the tell the VeggieTales so. crew because they'll be absolutely devastated to find out that they don't get in heaven. <laughs> oh. Have you know, I am no ordinary tomato. That's so, um, but that's my human standard of vegetables. I don't like tomatoes. So does God not let tomatoes in heaven? I'm sure God loves tomatoes. <laughs> loves all tomatoes. Salvation for all to- um, vegetables. <laughs> There's a quote for the, for the front cover of this podcast. Salvation for Absolutely. all tomatoes. <laughs> for all tomatoes. Now, look, if you've got a particular vegetable or fruit um, that you would not like to see in your eternal um, salvation then please leave a comment on the Never Odd or even Facebook page. We'll be very interested to see um, just how few vegetables there might actually be in heaven. Can, can I jump in again on a really weird tangent about apocalypse, right? So I grew up um, – well, I didn't grow up I, 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 at all, really. I'm still playing with toys. No, <laughs> but when I, when I did year 10, 11, and 12, I got put into a, a Christian private school, and it was a fairly conservative – Christian private school, in fact, incredibly conservative Christian. But anyway, um, but I was put in there, um, long story short, bullied in my previous school. Mum thought it would be better there. And they did Bible study. And we had to sit through these apocalyptic movies that were des- that were put together in the 70s and 80s that imagined what the world would look like if um, if the end of the world was coming. And I have had so many conversations with people since then who have been absolutely traumatised by those those films. Um, as far as a sci-fi tangent, be very keen on watching it with some people. But this image of a world going to pot and blowing up is, is really this image that we carry through in so many sci-fi tropes, that the idea that the oh. world will, will end and what do we do at the end of this world. Um, and, I, and I think the Christianity hasn't necessarily found a good answer to it either. Um, I, was, I was with Freddie Mercury. You know, I was waiting for the hammer to fall when, in the 90s uh, and the late 80s. Um, I love apocalyptic literature. John Wyndham is one of my favourite science fiction writers, um, most famous for the Day of the Triffids, but also for um, the Midwich Cuckoos um, and the Kraken Wakes. Um, I I can't get enough of um, uh, falling skies with alien invasions and walking dead. Uh, there's just something that is so compelling to me about existing um, in the apocalyptic narrative, um, to, to much to the point where I'm almost excited about the possibility that COVID-19 might be an apocalypse and I'm living through one, which just sounds really weird and warped and morbid. But but Can I say, uh, if I, it is, it's yeah. a very boring one. <laughs> I, I always... Sorry, Will. It, it, it takes... Don't forget that many apocalypses... Like, we love to think that these apocalypses... Um, are all kind of flash-in-the-pan moments, but they're the least interesting apocalypses. The slow-burn apocalypses in history that have taken 70 or 80 years to reveal themselves. Remembering that when we talk about the biblical apocalypses, the invasion of the Assyrians or the Babylonians or the Romans, uh, in which there were destruction of temples and buildings, that these things took decades to actually unfold. And at the beginning, people didn't even realise that they were in this revealing end-of-the-world kind of event. And since you raised it, apocalyptic writing in the way we read it in the scripture, it isn't actually, it is more sci-fi than it is anything else because what it does is it's written in a way to describe the end of the world as it's actually happening. But it it describes the world as it actually is and it uses specific code, specific images, specific... Uh, writing styles. It's a genre in and of itself. And to include it in in our biblical um, canon is is actually quite astounding that we actually have uh, a book. Well, we have a number of books in the scripture that fit in with apocalyptic writing, the book of Revelation being 
being one of them. But to actually have that kind of writing in our sacred uh, sacred book is actually kind of interesting. And there's a sneaky hidden one that really only begins to make sense if you actually understand that it was written during an apocalyptic period, and that's the Gospel of Mark. Um, it's most likely that the Gospel of Mark was being written at or around the same time as the temple was being destroyed by the Romans and Jerusalem was being sacked and burnt. And so when you when you read that Gospel through through that lens, you actually see that it has far more in in line with uh, the series The Walking Dead than it does, um, you know, the the life and times of of, of Jesus. You know, um, there's a sense in which it's it's it 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 takes on a very different apocalyptic feel when you read it, knowing that it was written with all of those events happening around them. I always find that um, a lot of apocalyptic things, we think ourselves as the main character. So when is the apocalypse going to happen? What's your zombie survival plan? A lot of people will be like, okay, well, we're going to go to Bunnings because they've got the hard, they've got the wood, they've got the tools, we can fortify. I'm going to go to the supermarket. I work in healthcare. I'm going to be the zombie. I'm the one that when people come in with a cough, like there's a reason that so many chemists are on the expo- um, COVID exposure list um, is because people get sick they go to the health professionals, they go to the pharmacies, they get their medication and go home. Yep. I have come to, I have come to terms with I'm going to be the zombie. It doesn't matter. <laughs> like I've had about three COVID tests purely just because someone coughed on me at work. <laughs> like so it's just like um, people think when they read these books, they see these movies that they're going to be the main character and you have to realise someone has to be the zombie. So... It's sad that people die in these apocalypse, but like Loki said, you know, oh, well, very sad. <laughs> like, we've got a job to do. Well, isn't it interesting? There's a variety of different ways that people respond to this apocalypse at the moment. We meet the woman who's sitting back in a rocking chair with a gun waiting for it all to happen, and she's, she seems to be the only person who's quite relaxed about it all. And then you've got the, the the soldiers who are following their orders to the end of it all. You've got people who are waiting in line, like as if there's a queue. Like there's still a queue at the end of the world. That's just exhausting. British. I mean, well, <laughs> yeah. Yes, exhausting. <laughs> um, British is the other answer. But um, like there's all these different responses that people have. And one of those responses is to get on the ark and to spend as, probably as much money as you possibly can to get on board um and there's all these people who are responding to this apocalypse in different ways and in all of this we have loki and sylvie trying to figure out their way off they haven't lost hope that they can figure a way off even though they know how the story ends they they're aware that the story ends um with with no one getting off they still believe that that does not apply to them. Maybe their status as being variant says that they actually don't have to follow those rules. Or even if they could get the ship off, that would cause enough of a deviation of, 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 a, of a timeline to cause a TVA to come on in and grab them and reset timeline. And then they yeah. could get the 10 pads and escape or they can go back to the TVA. Um, I'd like to talk a, a little bit about the relationship between um, Loki and Sylvie because it does become important in the later eps. Not Are you going to tell us what love is? <laughs> I, lo- I think that we get that moment in the train where they open up a little bit. Sylvie has been on the run by herself for so long that, um, and it's still all about the mission even when we get the backstory of um she was taken young and the TVA has been hunting her and mm. that's why she wants to end the TVA. And then Loki with that beautiful moment with um, with his mother and then the fireworks and learning about their different powers because Loki was trained by a very powerful witch, Freya, um, whereas Sylvie was on the run and had to just pick up whatever she thought she could do. So I'm sure both of them have the same power because they're both Loki variants, but it was amazing that the nurture versus nature took over and the 
you know, the nurture part of it split them so that their powers seem very different and they bond. I found it fascinating too that, that Sylvie is adamant that she is not just changed her name, but that she is not uh, Loki. She wants to say that, like, uh, so you've got two very strong statements. Um, Loki Hiddleston is constantly saying, I am not a variant. And variant Sylvie is adamantly saying, I am not a Loki. And so they're both very much defined at this point in time by what they are not rather than what they are. But also in this episode, we hear that everyone are variants. Like everyone everyone in the TVA are variants, which I would (laughs) say logically that kind of means that everyone's a variant. But everyone is a variant. The only one that is not a variant is the one that is doing the predetermined actions at the time, which I wonder if that actually means that they might actually be a variant. Yep. Well, the um, word variant is actually, um, you know, a, 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 a something that goes off the main path. It actually changes direction. It, it's it's interesting. That I noted in the um, shorts for the Eternals um, Marvel movie that's coming out, they refer to the enemy in that as deviants, and they're hunting deviants who are actually trying to actually um, mess up the world. So the word deviant and variant are actually very close. They're almost synonyms. Mm. We see how the, um, these two variants differ as well when um, Loki, um, Sylvie's uh, taking the moment on the train, this moment of quiet in the storm to rest up so that she can be prepared, whereas Loki is full-on god of mischief, god of chaos, and getting drunk and um, being merry. Um, he seems like the extrovert that just needs people around him, being the typical god needing worship. And so he's got the whole cabot <laughs> up on their feet drinking and singing songs with him. He's got me um, up singing with him. And it is it's only like as I'm as I'm laughing and thinking this I like this Loki this is really funny until I realised that not that long ago he was poking someone's eye out and making everyone bow to him. He was reveling in the moment, and then as Sylvie rightly says, "Hey, you drew attention," and where they get kicked off the train, and so that causes a whole other problem because maybe if they had stayed on the train, they could have gotten to the Ark a lot sooner, and then had their plan to uh, affect the arc that way. Um, maybe that would have worked, but because they got kicked off halfway through and had to walk, they didn't get there in time. So Yeah, I'm not sure they were going to stop a piece of the moon from hitting the arc before it took <laughs> off the landing pad. That's the issue. I <laughs> Well, no, I, but that, they are not. They arrived as they arrived as that happened, whereas if they had stayed on the train, they would have had like an hour to maybe you know, go down to the engine room and get the engine started a lot quicker or getting gotten their systems so that, yeah, um, but it's just that time where um, I just find that the what if of what's that, um, what that could have done. But it sounds like somebody's been watching the new what if series um, streaming on. Um, on uh, I just want to say if he is not Uatu, then I'm going to be very disappointed because <laughs> I want my Fantastic Four movie. Well, Back to what you said earlier on, I think one of Loki's um, uh, problems has always been his need to draw attention to himself. And we see that, like, all the way through that first Avengers movie is that I think he could have potentially done all he needed to do to do what Thanos had sent him there to do without having done, without having had all of this issue, but he decides he's going to try and draw attention to himself. Make everybody kneel in Germany. Yep, that's right. Yeah, he could have gotten that eye. He could have gotten an alien piece of technology just to scan the eye. He could have just grabbed that person and forced him to come with him, but he needed, um, I'm not justifying taking the eye, but, you know, he needed that attention, that screaming and yelling all all gave him. Mm. So... Now, um, they talk about hedonism in the midst of this um, and and um, he, he, he kind of says, well, I can't help but attract attention to myself because I'm hedonistic. Um, but then Sylvie claims to be hedonistic as well and actually says, 
yeah, but I don't do that. And so, so there was an, it's an interesting split because we could quite easily just say, oh, he's a, he, he's, he's a, an ego that needs to be, to be stoked. But, but hedonism is, it can be more than that, can't it? I guess that's where the purpose lies. So we see them that, um, like I said earlier, Loki can change. Loki is malleable. Loki does what, what for Loki, but he's also changeable to new information. Whereas Sylvie's very on task. So yes, she can be hen, um, hen, she can be that word, but um, she knows that to get. Uh, destroy the TVA, she has to get off the planet and therefore to get off the planet they have to stay on the train to get to the Ark and that's her goal. So if she went to another apocalypse afterwards to recoup, she has time to be um, to be whoever she wants but right now we're on a job. So very much like last episode where Loki ran to Mobius to say, I know how the variant is hiding. That was his goal. That was his purpose. Whereas in this episode, Loki doesn't have one. He doesn't have a purpose this way. He doesn't even almost want to, he's not putting as much effort into getting off the planet either. Like he just seems to be a leaf in the wind. He seems quite happy being in an apocalypse. He doesn't seem that he actually wants to get off. He's not stressed out in any way at all. And one of the things about Loki is you're never really sure uh, what he's planning or what's next for, for, for Loki at the time. He's not a great strategist, is he? I mean, he's not know, a long-term like, thinker. Not a no, long-term. Th- he, that, no. He's never had to be. He's a prince. Um, like he does whatever he wants, and then someone else takes care of it. Like, um, and being brought up in that kind of privilege and royalty has almost taken away his long-term, um, his ability to think long-term. Yeah. Because he's a prince. He wants that. He's going to go get it. And then the consequences can be whatever it wants. But he's the prince. So he's used to getting his way. Mm. So these two these two sit down at the bar and they start having a chat about their past and who they actually are and getting to know each other because it, I guess it's like it's a interesting. cute first date, isn't it? It is. It, it kind of feels like a bit of a, a first date but in an awkward way because they're there with themselves. Um and I wonder, like, did you learn more about Loki or more about Sylvie at the time? Or did you start feeling, did you start choosing one over the other? Well, I know some people started shipping them. Um, they started putting them together romantically. And and, and certainly there's a number of um, uh, websites I had a look at that, that suggest that uh, people were very excited about this idea as long as they didn't think too much about what it means to be in a in a romantic relationship with yourself, I guess we. Do have you guys to ask. have another hour? Because I've I've got some opinions on that. <laughs> oh, look, I, I, I think I think I'm going to ask you to hold those opinions. I think we're going to yes. come to this next week, maybe. Yeah, I'm um, thinking next week's the the better yeah, episode to discuss yeah, yep, this. Yep. Um, but, but but certainly, I think we we do have to ask this love question because it does come up here. We almost get a litany of love. Um, interestingly, last week in the um, in the in the revised common lectionary, we get song of song, uh, where, which is also a litany of love. There, there is there is a spark here. I think there's some kind of chemistry between them that that um, that comes up. But rather than talk about Loki well, isn't and it Sylvie, because there's nothing? Let's that talk Lo- about love. I was going to say, isn't there nothing that Lo- Loki loves more than himself? Them himself, yes. It's it's the ultimate hedonism for both of them, isn't it? Just falling in love with themselves. But Excuse we're me. not going to get ahead the of ourselves. Thing... Sorry, Darren. The other thing is, what type of love are we talking about? Mm, so yes. when we see in English, we seem to only have this one love. When 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 you say the word love, there's no way like in the Greek to express that I I love my mum. I love my partner. Uh, I love ice food. cream. Like, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, love, I love my car. I'm in love I with do my not car. Lo- I do not love tomatoes. Like, there's no way of saying what type of love. And that's where a lot of people can sometimes. Loki loves himself, 
does he love himself romantically? Does he love himself um, platonically? Does he lo- love himself narcissistically? Like there mm. seems to be this um, translation lost when we say love because I can say that Loki loves Sylvie and people are going to interpret that. Maybe you know, love is hate. Different things. Maybe love is hate. Maybe <laughs> love is just a series of chemicals that uh, and hormones that affect the brain therefore affects how the body feels. So we also have to have this discussion of when we talk about things, what what is the meaning behind it? As an asexual, when I say I love a person, they're like, oh, you're romantically involved or you you have to be sexually involved. It's like, no, like that's not what it is at all. And so from an aloe point of view people like oh yeah we think about sex all the time and i'm sitting there going no that's not quite right like for me so um the translation of love love is a dagger and i think it actually covers it quite well um what uh loki says but you just have to you know with two grains of salt what the word love is love is a dagger it is a weapon to be wielded far away or up close you can see yourself in it it's beautiful until it makes you bleed my cat made me bleed and i love it or a, <laughs> does that mean or, or love are they is saying my cat? that love doesn't exist because the dagger in the end is just imaginary love is a lie it's an illusion Loki's great Loki also suggests love is mischief. Um, that that what love makes us into fools um, and takes us to places we wouldn't necessarily and ordinarily go. Um, so, like I I, I, I love that um, I love I love that you've picked up on this word um, in English being being not up to the task um, because. Um, in in other languages, we actually have multiple words for this that actually break down into platonic love, into the love of things, familial love, um, to um, to erotic love, um, and and to unconditional love. And so it's a really fascinating um, idea, and maybe a flaw in Western modern Western culture that we've actually boiled this this massive word down into a sim- simple four letter word. Because when people um, people often, if there um, is a male and female friendship together, everyone asks, "Are, are you going to get together? Are you are you romantically involved?" It's like, no, we're just friends. We can be friends. Um, as someone who's had many of those friendships, it's like we don't have to think of that all the time. So. Um, and that's where in the, we look at this episode where Loki is trying to say to Sylvie, to this new person that is him, you know, I've, I've had a think about what we've talked about. So drunk as he is. He storms far the fjell, over is free time at Prem. He at the Hagen star my end and vene. Och singe. Nakoma du hem. In the storm-blackened mountains I wander alone, across glaciers I travel forth, in the apple orchard of the fair maiden stands and sings, Will you come home? When will you come home? When she sings, she sings, come home. Um, are the words that uh, Loki really mellows out to as he as he's singing in Asgardian. Uh, I had to brush up on my ancient Norwegian to get that translation. Uh, no, I didn't. I googled. But uh, there, there is that um, there is that sense in which those words are actually about something deeper, something bigger, something more with, with greater gravity um, than than this little word love we throw around. Um, as a nerd trivia side trivia, they should have gone with Icelandic over Norwegian because Icelandic is actually more is closer to uh, the ancient Norse, therefore the uh, probably closer to 
as Guardian, but that's nitpicking and that's just because uh, I'm feeling air. Will Darren say what? something? You're on mute. Darren, <laughs> save me. <laughs> it's okay. I, I, I'm, of, I'm of the understanding that every now and then Will can come in and just edit out air. And so we don't need we don't need to worry about airspace. Um, we can we can prune it. We can prune the air. Um, and so don't be so, don't be afraid that we need to be talking about something all the time. So my my, my brain's yeah. trying to catch up a little bit. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> we do have an audience though, so hi, mum. I feel so like. I will- Hi, Mum. I, I will say, I will just throw in while you're, you're catching up. Um, Jeg Min Ganjur was composed specifically for Loki by Erland O. Nord, Nordvelt um, and Benedict Marsuth. It, 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 when you've got an O with a slash through it, what? how do you pronounce that? Is that no, no, Nod? Nod? Is it a short or a long O? Anyway, it's got I've a... I've looked at Icelandic, not, not Norwegian, sorry. Slash through it. So er, Erland O. Nordvelt and Benedict Marsuth. Great names there. I love them. I have to remember them for, for future characters when I'm rolling up for 5th uh, edition D&D. And all of this, once Darren can interrupt me when he's got his, uh, got his next thing, but we haven't talked about uh, Sylvie's powers of being able to go into the mines and put you in a situation that is familiar but didn't quite happen that way. Yeah, well, you said that you had something to say around that. Well, I, I do, actually. One of the things that fascinates me with that is is that that's a form of interrogation. So, um, and, Gaslighting. And gaslighting. One of the problems with constructing fantasies for the purpose of manipulating other people is having to keep track of the fantasies you've constructed, um, and uh, I, I just I, I love that that idea. Um, there was a, a statement of, of of fact that was actually put in this, and and when I say fact, I, I say it loosely, um, but it's one that exists in a lot of sci-fi when sonic powers and Jedi mind tricks. Only the weak um, can. Um, be affected by enchantment only the weak-minded and so the jedi say this as well you know like um we can only use this on people who are already susceptible that the idea that a person can be drawn into the fantasy of another and reveal something about themselves is considered to be a point of weakness um and uh, that appears in 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 tropes of of science fiction again and again and again how do we feel about that the idea that the capacity to be drawn into somebody else's dream is weakness. And it really depends on what they mean by weak in terms of that. Like uh, if someone spent the day in my head, they'd, you know, ask for their ransom back (laughs) because of certain elements of my, um, of the way I think. But does that make me weak because I'm not neurotypical or... I'm a, a neurodivergent. Is that what they mean by weakness? Is is it that I daydream every five minutes? I'm daydreaming right now. That, but I'm not. But well, what's the weakness? Weak. Like, what yep. is what is strong versus weak? What mm. quant- quality or quantity are we talking about when it comes to that? And is it is it really? I think sometimes when we hear this in sci-fi in particular, this idea that. Um, there are certain people that are more difficult to enchant or more difficult to um, brainwash or what, whatever. And quite often what we find is that it's, it's not actually that they're um, unable to be um, enchanted. It's, it's more about the confidence that the person has in their strength or in their ability. Or the awareness. Um, and what we see in, in a lot of the Star Wars movies is that we see that people that that people's strength grows over time and things that they once thought was impossible um are now possible and it's part of bringing us along on the journey we still see not only personal growth but also power growth in the in the arc of the story arc of the narratives so by by setting a limit for um for sylvie now um maybe they're actually setting us up for um, a growth of power 
throughout throughout so the strength, rest of the story. Strength of mind is is about certainty of position, um, and 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 an inability to um to entertain other possibilities. That that sounds a little bit like the Dunning Kruger effect. I mean, I, I would have to suggest that many flat earthers would be very certain about their position and not easily dissuaded into. Uh, another um, understanding or narrative to explain the way that things work. I watched a thing on Flat Earthers the other day and they were saying um, that, that they, they said an experiment for them and they said this will prove that the Earth is flat and their experiment proved that the Earth was round. And so rather than going, oh, oh well, look, we've got to really give some more thought to this, went, oh, we need another experiment. We need to, we need to try a different way. And so, so this idea that the weak mind is uncertain and so can be drawn into other narratives. The strong mind is certain and will not entertain other possibilities is is, is a really fascinating concept. That means there's a bell curve. You've got the mm. two extremes and then the bell curve of who's most susceptible down the bottom would be those who are willing to take in information. So on one hand, you've got Loki who's changing his plan and position in that plan uh, with every bit of new information, should be susceptible because he's willing to change. But then you've got the other hand of his confidence in self is so strong that she can't enchant him. So it seems to be that there's a lot of things um also loki is aware of that when she tries to do it she's he um the pronouns are fun uh he knows she can do it so is that awareness something that also gives him a uh, an edge because he can think around that and go what are you doing i know that you're doing it not to say that it's you know once um they know you can get around it, but that's also another thing. It seems to be multiple different things about what a weak mind. And it's interesting that this conversation about um, interrogation takes us all the way back at the beginning of the, of this episode where we see the enchanting of uh, one of the TVA agents. Um, and we're led to believe at the beginning that this is entirely imagination, that uh, Sylvia's created a world where this agent um, is having a drink with her um, and that they are best friends. But what we learn as Sylvie and Loki are talking is that actually what happened was she'd taken a memory from hundreds of years beforehand and used those memories to create that, that illusion, that enchantment. And in that conversation, we learn that everyone's variants. So this, this, entire, this entire episode is, well, most of it is done outside of the realm of the TVA. We don't see too much of them. We have the brief fight in the, in the beginning and the interrogation at the beginning, but for the majority of it, we're on Lamentus. And this is where I think the story turns on the TVA because we're free from its grasps. So if the first episode was meant to make you feel a bit uneasy with the TVA, this is the episode where uh, we're free from it so we can have any opinion on the TVA um, TVA we want. So, um, I mean, I almost felt sorry like once you learned that there were variants, I almost got sympathy for not necessarily the TVA Institute but those serving, like Mobius, like Casey, who might not know, who might be serving the TVA unconsentedly. <laughs> and that's why it's really important that Mobius is absent from this episode because Mobius complicates those feelings about sympathy and empathy for the for the TVA. So by by not writing any scenes for Mobius in this episode, it allows us to... To, to not be confused by our like for or dislike for a character or an institution, but instead to stay with the perspective of these these two um, variants, Loki and Sylvie, Sylvie, who are actually attempting to um, make sense of the universe. But isn't it interesting that the, the institution of the TVA relies heavily on people who are unaware of their part in the entire in the entire system um, yep. or who might have, as we find out 
um, in this place, they don't know that they are uh, variants who might have um, had their brains washed. And so they're, yeah, well, they, they might have. not even consent, consented to being a part of this process. And I wonder if you've ever been a part of an institution that you suddenly realise that it's operating in a way that is unjust or has used you in a particular way because there's points in um, working for institutions that you look in the mirror and you might not recognise yourself. Um, and this is what I think I spoiled in the first episode is that they were all variants and it seemed to be that the tests along the way could have created and could have been like oh you're compliant with everything we do in such a way that oh we'll wipe your mind and therefore you'll still be compliant like um the institute created them not just in a um uh, wipe your mind and now you work for us, but also we vetted you. And a lot of people can go into institutions looking themselves in the face going, I'm going to change this. I'm going to be the one to come in and shed some light or be that uh, beacon uh, for good. Well, I'm not saying, well, institutions, uh, I'm not going to comment on them, but then, yeah, like Darren says, a year, two years later, they've been institutionalized but and whether that's a good thing or not is um up to their moral views as as ministers of the of 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 a church um we would know nothing about what michelle has just spoken about because um um we've never been institutionalized by a, a large system that isn't certain what its purpose is definitely not will I have no idea what you're talking about. Yeah, I'm just talking fiction. I'm just like, what if? This is the this is the seventh what if episode of uh, Marvel series. What if? Um, so, I'm sure you guys don't have it. I love the reference to brain freeze. Um, I thought that was really, really good. I, I, I'm actually very susceptible to brain freeze. I have to be very careful not to drink anything that's even slightly cold because my synapses do freeze and, uh, and, and I'm incapable of, of coming to um, any, any kind of suitable answer or conclusion. Um, so what do you remember? Because apparently I, brain freeze makes you remember stuff better. Makes you remember stuff better. Actually, it, it stops me from remembering anything at all except for the fact that I go, oh, I hope that passes quickly. But, yeah, so we've got two areas of consent, um, which is a big issue for me as well as consequences, is that uh, the hunter didn't consent to having someone in her mind and we have the variants of the TBA possibly not consenting to being very... Um, members of the TVA. So what do we what do we think about consent? But you you can't interrogate with consent, can you? I mean it's an interesting thing. If you if you the whole purpose of of extracting information from somebody against their will is a violation. Um, it's violence. Um, it's it's aggression. Um, and and so Sylvie is being very violent, more violent than she is when she's punching and striking um, by actually reaching into the hunter's brain and trying to pull that out um, and um, and prevent. Some might say it's a more humane way because there's no physical violence, but we clearly see that there's an emotional or mental what's uh, effect, <laughs> yep. mental and effect. I, I think we do underestimate um gaslighting and other forms of emotional abuse as domestic violence i i think that 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 sometimes people who might um be being gaslit um or or having their reality um reframed on a constant basis um may not consider themselves to be in a domestic violence situation because there's no physical blows landing but but the the the, the mental anguish and the mental trauma that's caused by by this this form of of interrogation and control um, is is can can be far more um, damaging and and uh, far reaching than um, than physical blows. 
And I think a lot of people um, use that as judgment because we see in a lot of the these mental health um, cases of abuse, we all sit there going, well, just leave, like if that's how terrible. But that's not necessarily how gaslighting works. Gaslighting is slow and it's about changing the perception of reality. So by the time you're so far down, you don't know what left and right is in terms of mental um, capacity. So um, abuse, you just you just can't say to people, just leave, because they might not know what they're leaving or to leave. So does this make, does this make what Sylvie is doing uh, necessarily evil or understandable? or necessary and is it different to when she does it to a tv agent to a regular person as she does in episode two i think if she did it willy-nilly like if she did it um i don't want to pay for that ice cream so i'm just going to change your mind to say that yes i paid for it then you're um you're definitely on the side of you've got no moral code to hold your powers and not to say that going someone's mind without their consent is um, upstandingly moral, but if they have a moral code, then you can kind of see, well, I'm on, uh, Sylvie is on task. She wants to destroy the TBA. So she seems to be using her powers to further, that so it's under it's not right but it's understandable that she would use everything in her power she would murder a person she would enter their minds uh anything to uh, befriend loki even though she doesn't want to to further getting to the tva because she sees herself as fighting a greater evil she sees herself as attempting to perform a greater good um, by taking down the TVA, she perceives herself as a liberator um, of of the enslaved. Um, so it's 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 I mean, it's fascinating how in this episode we've spent an hour now talking about it. We have managed to discover uh, get no closer to discovering what is real. We haven't been able to provide an answer as to what love is, and um, we we find ourselves in an unresolved. Uh, place on the edge of apocalypse. Uh, it's fascinating, isn't it? We we're almost as viewers standing next to Loki and Sylvie, watching the watching the destruction <laughs> of their only exit, wondering what next. Yeah, because they were so sure that if they got to the Ark, they would be saved. But then the Ark exploded. So we're sitting here going, "What?" <laughs> uh, yeah, no, there's going to be a backup plan, definitely. But you're still sitting there going, "But the Ark's destroyed." <laughs> And we'd like to thank you for our three-part series on Loki um, that comes to an end this week with the concluding episode of the Loki series. Apparently. Uh, uh, no, no, there is more to come. Um, we are now at the midway point of the Loki um, season and uh, we have three episodes to go, having completed three. Let's hope that perhaps next week we might get some of the answers we seek. Uh, I've been timekeeper Will Nicholas. I've been Hunter Michelle Kaufman. And I'm variant Darren Wright. And this has been Loki, the Sacred Timeline Podcast. Yeah. <laughs> Do you want to redo that? <laughs> yes. <laughs>